Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let me tell you about this week's sponsor, Shady Rays. You might have heard me talk about Shady Rays on this show before. And ever since they sent me my first pair, I have been loving these sunglasses and I'm loving the philosophy behind the company because Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company, meaning they don't overcharge you for sunglasses because truthfully, everyone knows sunglasses are overpriced and it's easy to lose or break sunglasses. So it always feels especially bad to break or lose an expensive pair of sunglasses. And Shady Rays has solved all of that. Let me tell you how they do it. The craziest thing about Shady Rays is the warranty. It's one of the best warranties in all of eyewear. They'll replace your shades if they are lost or broken for any reason. It doesn't matter what happens, whether you drop them in the ocean, run over them with your car, whatever. Try that with your high-priced shades and see if they'll help you. Even with that strong of a warranty, they still manage to make quality that I can tell you, holding in my hand, seems as good as any expensive name brand pair I have ever worn. They have polarized lenses that look perfectly clear, and most Shady Rays are $48. Shady Rays also provides 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order placed, and they have provided over 10 million meals to date. They stand behind their product, and they told our team that if anyone has a problem, they'll throw profit out the window and do what it takes to get it right. They have free returns and exchanges. You either love the sunglasses or Shady Rays will pay to ship them back. That's it. So, here's the deal. Exclusively for our listeners this summer, you can use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs of shades at ShadyRays.com. You can buy one and get one free, or you can get two pairs of shades for $48. You can redeem this only at ShadyRays.com, where you can find all their newest and best shades. That's the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs at ShadyRays.com. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with actress, writer, and director Greta Gerwig. The conversation you're about to hear has to be one of my favorites. Like most of her films, Greta is smart, curious, and authentic. That might be why roles in mainstream studio movies were few and never quite a perfect fit. Well, no matter, Greta discovered she could create not only better roles, but better films herself. As a writer, director, and actress, her work in films like Frances Ha, Mistress America, Greenberg, Maggie's Plan, and 20th Century Women have made her one of the most vital and original voices in independent film. That's not to say she has it all figured out, but in our talk, she raised some fascinating questions that I think all artists should ponder. Among lots of other stuff, we talk about making moments into movies, truth and artifice in storytelling, and why finding your voice is something you can never check off your to-do list. Greta believes good cinema is out there. You just have to know where to look for it. Don't give up until you hear this episode. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Greta. Hi. Thanks for coming and doing this. Thanks. I'm a fan of your work, and I have been for a long time. Um, and I've wanted to have you on the show for a few years now. Wow. And I knew you would be great on it. Oh, well, I feel like that's maybe setting the bar well, to... Well, you've had black and white experience. <laughs> oh, yes, that's true. You I've know how to, yeah. how to be in a black and white environment. It's true. A lot of people don't. I like, I like a black and white environment. Yeah. I actually, I mean, I really do like a black and white environment. I don't know if it was Peter Bogdanovich, but someone said, um, I mean, 
it, it was more about films, but he said, or maybe it was Mike Nichols, one of those guys who was good at saying things. One of those hacks. Um, yeah, one of those guys. <laughs> but like that, that black and white, it's good for cinema because it's, it's already a metaphor. It already isn't life, which is an advantage. Th that, that's what we want. It, we, we're, not do, we're not recreating life exactly. It's something else, and it already makes you feel like, oh, it's a metaphor. It's the, it's the outline of the thing. So you're already in that mindset when you're watching it, which I think about a lot. But when I think of the films that have affected me so much over the years in black and white, like The 400 Blows or yeah. um, Manhattan, uh, and more recently, you know, Francis Ha was a huge film for me, and I don't think it would have had the same effect in color on me. I don't think it would have either. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think it, it being in black and white was a huge part of the, it, the emotion of it. Yeah. And I, I find black and white very emotional. I think to me when I saw it um, originally in the theaters, mm. it was easier to access memories and make it, personal to my yes, memories yeah. because of the palette and because yeah. of maybe the music too. Yeah, that's true. Have you seen it lately? I have not seen it lately. I haven't, I, I don't really re-watch things. I mean, I, I, I'll probably see it again at some point, but it's like, you spend so much time with them and you go, I went to lots of festivals with it and I talked about it so much that it almost... I can't, you, you have to almost not look at it for a while because I, I still haven't come back around with most of my movies yet. But I know, you know, from talking to other filmmakers and actors that they, that sometimes they'll catch something that they d did, like on cable, or, and they'll think, oh my God, this is pretty good. Right. Pretty good. But not like egotistically, almost like, removed from whatever the moment was. Like tricking yourself into that's not something you made. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, this is this is pretty good. Well, it brings up a question of how you judge your own work as an actor, too, because I would think oh, that... I don't even know. It's so, it would be so hard to remove yourself from it. I don't know how anyone judges their own work, period, for anything, because it's... I mean, I think the best... I, the best I can figure is you... you you try to be rigorous with yourself about it, and that's like all you can do because, because you don't have any idea, because you can't get outside of yourself in that right. way. That's like the, the thing to me that's always kind of incredible, but maybe I understand it now more now than I ever have before, is like artists who work in isolation, who never have feedback, um, like Emily Dickinson, <laughs> or like, <laughs> right. did you how did you even, like, know what you were going for? I mean, meaning, like, the sort of the idea of, like, a, the, like a Shakespeare... I'm not comparing myself to Shakespeare, but, like, the idea of a Shakespeare that... Um, he was putting up plays all the time. Right, People he got it. feedback. People liked it or they didn't like it. And you sort of, over the course of his career, like, of the dates of the plays, you see, like, he got better at tragedy. He, in his early plays, he hadn't really figured it out. Like, in Titus Andronicus is crazy. And then, like, by the time he gets to King Lear, it's like, oh, he gets it now. But he'd been having this feedback loop, and he'd been an actor, and he'd been... Right. And I was like, oh, I understand that. I mean, I'm not Shakespeare, but I understand that process. But, but that sort of isolation, it's like, how would you ever even know? I mean, maybe it's a personality type. 
You don't think Emily Dickinson was like bringing her manuscripts around to people and saying, "Can you read this and give me what your do you notes?" Think, <laughs> what do you think of this? I don't think she left her house. Well, it does bring up because what you're talking about is the extreme, right? Like right. on one end, you have Sylvia Plath or Emily Dickinson just yeah. uh, just shut in yeah. and, and with yeah. no feedback at all, and then you have the film business, which is entirely based on feedback. feedback. It's all feedback. And probably you want to be somewhere in the middle, right? Like probably, yeah. Yeah, probably you want to be, you don't want to be so swayed by the world that you lose track of the, the thing you're going for, but you also don't want to be so shut off from it. I mean, the thing I always think is, I, somebody, I mean, I should not speak ill of this movie. I've never seen it. But I remember somebody telling me that the that you know how they test movies yeah. like with test audiences and they get scores. <laughs> somebody at Warner Brothers told me that the highest tested movie that they've ever made was Kangaroo Jack. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, there you go." Clearly, I mean, it's a like, 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 but if that's the way that you're judging it, it's like Kangaroo Jack is the best movie of all time. Yeah. But then at the same time, like really smart, interesting artists. Like I remember listening to James Earl Brooks saying like. He tests things, and he's really smart about taking what what is working and what is not working. And, I mean, James L. Brooke is a complete author, so I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. He's able to somehow do it. I think what you're saying is, like, when the test audience starts um, reverse engineering the film all the way back to yeah. the script process, then we have these, like, Temple superhero movies and no, and there's no emotion or anything, but or they're not made by people. They're not they made just, by. Yeah. So you just look at them and you're like, a person didn't make this. I yeah. don't know what made it, but it wasn't a person. Yeah, I read something where you had sort of talked about a few times you had waded into mainstream waters. You did Arthur. Yeah, you yeah, did yeah. No Strings Attached, mm-hmm. and you sort of found out through those experiences that maybe that's just not the world that you fit in. And that's true. I mean. Although I have to say, particularly with No Strings Attached, it was written by someone, Liz Merriweather, who also created the show New Girl, who I very much think is a really great writer. And she's also a playwright. And she's remained a friend. And also, Natalie Portman was in that movie. And we did Jackie together. So, like, I can't write off. Like, you know, I felt very much like, oh, this world doesn't really know what to do. I, they don't know what to do with me, and I don't know what to do with it. It was more of that thing of... Just a misconnection. I guess also, I've never felt particularly comfortable in, like, Arthur... I've never felt comfortable with um, being the, the girl, the ingenue part, the sort of the love object. Right. That's always been a very uncomfortable position for me. She doesn't... She's not in charge of her own destiny. Right. Her reason for being is... Is, is only that she's desired by the protagonist. Right. So I, I don't know. I've just never felt... I, I always feel very uncomfortable when I'm meant to be appealing in that way. Right, because it doesn't match with your real world at all. No. I thought in Arthur, because Liza Minnelli played the original part, and right. I was like, well, if Liza can... <laughs> certainly. I should certainly take a shot. Certainly, I can take it. No, no. I, I mean, it's like... But she... But I... I was like, well, where is my bright red pantsuit? But, um, yeah, I don't know. There's something about being, like, sort of the, the, the necessity of what you're doing is that you must be 
charming and likable, I find that very, very hard. The pressure of being likable rather than the pressure of being real. Yeah, it's like if I have any shot at being, um, at being charming and likable, it's only because I'll be able to be real in some way. The minute that the priority is charming and likable, I think I, I just go into like a hall of mirrors and it all collapses and I'm like, I just wish I had like a limp and a, like an eye patch. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm describing playing a pirate, but yeah. like, I just feel like well, what pirates. is there to Maybe do? Maybe there's some common ground. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, but I, I hear what you're saying. I hear you saying it's one thing to discover something organically, and it's another yeah. thing to have it put upon you, and you have to live up to it. Right. And I think at that time, I think particularly, you know, I was 25, and that's what 25-year-old women do, or that's what was available at that time, to be that. And then, I mean, perhaps, though, as I get older, I might find a, a place for myself that makes more sense. But I don't know. I mean, the movie industry, I, I don't know. It, it keeps changing what, what, what studios make and how they make it. And I don't really have a handle on it. I don't know that anybody does. See, but I think that you're in an amazing position because you don't have to have a handle on it because you can self-generate these projects that allow you to be so much more than than what women are supposed to be in film <laughs> traditionally. And so yeah. I read that you said something about about this vista that opened up to you in terms of seeing the much bigger picture once you, maybe once you did Francis Hall, yeah. where you realized that you birthed this thing and mm -hmm. it didn't exist. And yeah, it's like that yeah. burden and blessing at the same time right. because all of a yeah. sudden you realize, well, to be a true artist, you have to like, you can't just sit back and by the pool and wait for the scripts to roll in. <laughs> it that, never happens. And was that a realization that, that hit you as both good and bad? Mostly, it was most, it was all good in a way because I think I didn't. Um, it's almost like I, I suddenly saw the mountain that was in front of me. It was like the mist had lifted, and it was like, oh, it's going to be a climb, but it's there, kid. There was your inner voice called you kid. Yeah, I, my inner voice calls me kid. All like, the time. It's like bogey in there. Well, kid. It is. Well, kid. I know. Um, but I, I think I think it was also like I, when I wrote Francis and made it, and then I, you know, I, was, I was writing more stuff, and I, it, it was all of a sudden it was just became clear, like, well, you have to do this. You have to. I, I, like, this is, this is what's in... What else are you going to do? You have to keep making work and I think more than anything it was it was it was a relief in a way I think to me it's more anxiety producing to think that someone will hand you a script that will change your life or something like that because it's like well what are the chances right but there's something very heartening about well it's a lot of work but you can do it you you will have to have to do it and you can and that's um that's much less scary to me than waiting for something. That being said, I've also had lots of m moments where there have been scripts and opportunities that I did nothing to earn, and then all of a sudden I got, which was which is amazing. But, well, you did something. Well, well, there. I did, right, but I didn't write them. I didn't, right. you know, like something great that I would love to be part of, you know. Came and want, I wanted it, and it wanted me, and then I got to get down to the business of 
making the character and being an actor, but that waiting process is the, the worst. So I felt rel relief that I, there was a lot of work to be done. I think you can kind of trace it back also to Francis Ha being patient zero, because when you do something that's that pure and beautiful and that, that is a, a film in the tradition of, of right. cinema lovers, you know, like yeah. Woody Allen and uh, Truffaut, and uh, there's, there's a lineage of that kind of film, right. um, which I'm sure brought people to you in a way that that's how you earned Say say a role like, I, and I don't know if this is yeah. the right example, but in 20th, 20th Century Women, which yeah. the work you do in Francis Ha, I'm sure, yeah. starts that ball rolling for you in the right direction. De I mean, definitely. I think it's also, you know, as soon as you start finding your voice, whether it's as an actor, as a writer, as a, then other people who are speaking the same language find you. It, it all goes together. It's like then suddenly you're in this group of people that it, they're choosing to make personal, interesting films, yeah. and then you keep finding each other. It, it, that all sounds kind of mystical, but it seems to have worked out that yeah. way. Yeah, you mentioned finding your own voice yeah. on, on a film, and, and right. you're doing it with a collaborator, with Noah Baumbach. Yeah. What I'm talking about is the very beginnings of the idea that became Francis Ha, working with somebody who'd written a yes. bunch of movies, yes. and now you're going to collaborate with somebody like that, and, right. and how you brought yourself to it, and if you accidentally stumbled across a process. I mean, the truth was, I had wanted, I still want, I might do at some point, but I had wanted to be... Um, a playwright. I, I wrote plays in college and I had applied to graduate school in playwriting and I got turned down by all of them. You did? Yeah. And so I had been kind of writing all along and the improvisational stuff I was doing with Joe Swanberg and the Duplass brothers right after I graduated from college was like, it was almost live writing in a way. So yeah. it was using some version of my writer brain and it was an incredible way to learn what works on film and what narratively filmmaking, storytelling being different than theater storytelling. But I never quite lost the love for precise written text the way it is in plays. That's why I always feel comfortable with those like Howard Hawks movies and Preston Sturges and Ernst Lubitsch. Like any time that the dialogue is kind of center in yeah. a way, and the filmmaking happens around it. Even in Woody Allen films, it has a, that feeling. For sure. So I never really lost that. So I'd been kind of writing all along and not necessarily doing anything with it. Just There was just documents that kept getting longer and longer and longer. Um, and then Noah asked if I would be interested in making not an experimental film, Film, but making a real film experimentally, if that makes sense. Oh, and interesting. Did I have any ideas? And I put together a list of, it was actually moments, less than character traits, that I thought I hadn't seen. And I thought maybe if we press on these, there's a movie behind it. And they were things like trying to decide whether you want to pay the fee on the ATM was one of them. It seems so backwards to me to come up with the moment before you know what the structure is. And yet, yes. maybe that's no, for the right me, way to do it. That's, that's how, that, so I came up with that list. He wrote back and said, 
It was so funny. I think he said right away, it's a movie. I, can, I know it's a movie. And did you write back, how is it a movie? To be honest, I felt the same way. I like kind of knew it was a movie. And then I had all this work that I'd been also generating and I ended up sending a ton of it to him and it was uh, it was completely unshaped it wasn't it had no shape it had no drive and then we wrote separately really and um we would email it back and forth to each other and um there were ideas that we'd flesh out and we'd write these scenes and then he'd edit it or he'd send me a scene and I'd edit it and that's how the script was built and I don't know any other way to describe it except for it always felt like we were playing the same song it's like and I feel like really the best example is like when I've watched documentaries about musicians right when they write music that thing of I don't know what these four chords are yet but I think it's a song. And their bandmate says, I think it is a song. And then what if this happened? And then all of a sudden, you're writing American Girl. I don't know. <laughs> so that was what it felt like. And even now, like when I write now, it's still a version of like moments. And then I start like building out. So the structure actually comes later. Yeah, I never structure before. That's so fascinating. I can't structure before. There's something, if I structure before, I don't, it never quite has a fizz underneath it. But I believe in structure, but I only really find it through, um, it's like it has to be built like a, like a honeycomb or something. It has to be built underneath it. It, it, it has to be all interconnected. Otherwise, it feels like it's a, it's like a thing put on top of it. I, I, can't, I, I can't explain it, but it's almost like, if it, it, like there'll be something that comes out of a scene that everything sort of seems like it's unfolding naturally, and then it's picked up 20 minutes later, and you're like, oh, that thing that just passed us by actually ended up being a part, that's the plot. But like, it almost happens subterranean. But it's like I have to, it's almost like I leave clues for myself as I'm writing. It sounds like what you're saying is life is so messy that how could you like start creating a life, which a movie is, like in an organized fashion? And not to be this person, but I guess to be this person. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of plots, like what people think of as plots, like classic structures, are really Male stories. So the classic, the the seven plots that we have since the beginning right. of time, you say, uh, well, that makes sense because it's been a male-dominated world for most yeah, of our lives. It's true. I mean, there are, I, I, it's, I, that's a generalization that I'm not sure I want to stand behind, <laughs> but I do think that there is something there and there's, there's a, I, I feel like I'm constantly searching for these different narratives. I, there's a, a lot of female-centric myths in Native American traditions, actually. And you know the classic, like, George Lucas reading, like, um, uh, Joseph Campbell? Like, the right, all of yeah. that stuff? And they're all, like, the hero myths. They're all guys, which makes sense. But I was like, well, there are, I, I went back and I read Joseph Campbell, and I was like, where are the lady myths? And it's tricky. There aren't as many, and they're not, they're not quite as tidy. They're always, and they're always a little bit witchy. 
Isn't um, that interesting? Yeah. Because when, you just, when you're saying that, I'm thinking of Francis Ahn, I'm thinking of Mistress America. Yeah. And the reason I'm drawn to them so much is there's definitely structure oh, there. Oh, there's structure, but yeah. I am not being manipulated through the structure no. in a way that I will arrive in that place that I right. feel like in a lot of films yeah. that are traditionally romantic comedies or right. dramedies or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, Francis Ha specifically, we at a certain point put a, I mean, there's a few different structured structures going on, but one of them is, let's tell it like a classic love story. She has the girl, she loses the girl, she tries to get the girl back. Like, that, that it, it was kind of almost like a rom-com, but it was with a girl. Which is valid. I mean, that, it sort of follows that to some extent. And I think, I mean, in a way, both of but them... But it's not highlighted. No. There's not the uh, desperate no. run to the airport that... Oh, I love a run in an airport, <laughs> though. I mean, I'm so interested in taking things, tropes from other, like... Uh, other movies and putting them on something where it doesn't belong like but what if they're two girls yeah and it's not like literally then we like wrote it around it it's like we started writing this character this character we started writing these scenes and then it's it's almost like um, a magic eye picture you know those magic eye pictures oh yeah when it takes a while <laughs> to see what it is yeah right I gotta show my and kids those those are so magic eyes were huge in the 90s they I don't were, know what th- happened to magic they're eyes they're there were books they were on every, every dentist I ever went yeah. to maybe we could have a magic eye effect I know what if your dress had a magic eye it does cause it's sort it's of it's a sailboat <laughs> no <laughs> I feel like it's always like aquatic yeah um, <laughs> um, no magic eyes they're, I think their heyday is gone. It's past. I also think, like, I really... You, it, they were taken com- over by the internet. It's computer generated, so it's not... Right. It's not like a person was making those magic eyes. No, they weren't. They weren't. So anyway, I guess that's a quite roundabout... I don't even know what I was saying exactly other than structure. It comes out at me. I think you were saying that the magic eye metaphor is, <laughs> hopefully, if you make a film slyly enough... Yeah. Those elements can be in there, but they can be yeah. they can be buried enough that you can get right. lost in the originality of the of the story itself without seeing the structure. Right, and I, I also I'm a big believer, and I think structure is so deep in us. Like I think it's so. What's well, your inherent. friend, right? Yeah, it, you can use it, and it's so. We put it even in stories we tell our friends or in emails we write. We have a we want it. It's how we create meaning. So I feel like sometimes kind of coming at it from an analytical way, it's like denying your birthright, which is story structure. Your birthright is story structure. You have it. Like, you don't need to teach yourself how to do it. You have it by the fact that you exist with language. I I just think that that's true. I wonder if there was any confusion from the beginning or any um, question at all that you would play the lead role of the film or or if you knew that from the beginning. Um, no one knew it from the beginning. And I definitely wrote wrote this part that I could technically play. I have trouble writing when I think about myself acting. Why is that? I don't know. It feels like it's a def- different part of my brain. So it's, do you imagine it's somebody else when you write it? Yeah. You do? And it's, it's never um, another actor. It's always the person, whoever that person is. Oh, so you don't imagine Elizabeth Banks... No, although I think she'd probably do, she do everything pretty well. Yeah. So. No, but I mean, it, yeah, that, no. that's not a tool you use. No, I don't imagine Elizabeth Banks. 
I imagine <laughs> I whatever. The, it's almost like the same. You know when you read a novel and you've got a vague picture of the oh, person yeah. in your head, but you couldn't really describe them to a police sketch artist, but you know exactly what you yes. you feel. I know exactly what you're saying. So I think like the that. Raymond Chandler books are like that. Yes, you know, yeah. I know what those characters look, look like. like. And even with the small, like, they don't even need to physically describe them. It's like this, even with the smallest, you're like, I know what that person, and Raymond Chandler is a good example for that because it's so s- sparse, I feel. Yeah. So it's like that. And then when I'm acting, it's like the way I write and the way I've written with Noah is that the, the script is really a pretty set document and you don't change anything. You don't change any of the words. There's no improv. There's no improv. No. It just, it, we just, I'm not interested in it. He's not interested in it. It's funny because you came up that way. It is. I know. But I wonder if that secretly helped you. Like, mm. I wonder if you didn't come up that way. Maybe I'd be more interested. Or, or yeah. maybe coming up through improv, you already knew, you already learned some things that you don't have to relearn. I don't, I don't know. I, I have never, I've not like really sat down and analyzed the sort of my, my never using improv now. But it is notable, I have to say. I mean, it is notable. And also, I, I guess it's notable, too, because I feel like the kind of writing I like is the kind of writing that one might think is improv. Yes. So all my favorite filmmakers have this sort of way with language. My favorite playwrights, too, like they... Like, I love, like, Kenneth Lonergan, his writing eh, does not sound like writing, but it definitely is writing. And actually, Kenneth Lonergan, I I remember reading his plays when I was in college, and I hadn't read them before, and I read Lobby Hero, and I read This Is Our Youth, and I thought, oh, this is closer. This is kind of what I think I could try to do. But I mean, I, I wasn't as good as Kenneth Lonergan, but I had this sense of like, this is a friend. And I, the same thing I felt about uh, Mike Lee, the British director's yeah, movies. Like Naked. Like Naked, or like Secrets and Lies, or Happy Go Lucky, or, um, you know, Another Year, or Mr. Turner, which just killed me. Like, all of those scripts are developed with the actors an intensive improv, and then he goes away and writes a set script. That begs the question of how you, how you do it um, in terms of if there's no improv on set, how do, you, how do you get it up on its feet before you get it up on I its feet? I think I do some version of a one-woman thing of what Mike Lee does, which is I think I almost do the improv work before in my head where I play all the characters and then I set it. I don't know any other way to describe it, but there's something about the way he works where it's like you use that improvis- improvisational impulse and then you set it right. and then you, re- then, you, then you make the thing. And I, I've, I've always known that his, his work was like super scripted, um, but I didn't, I think, I think you can tell more clearly when you see a play and I saw a play of his um, called Ecstasy in London, which he wrote a long time ago. You would think these people were making it up on the spot. I mean, to the point where there was like, there's like a moment where one guy offers a cigarette to a woman, and she she goes to take it, and he he the pack accidentally two cigarettes fall out, and then it's this big bobble, and and you think, oh no, 
oh, in the pl- like they messed it up. And then he like takes the two cigarettes and puts them in his mouth. He lights them both. He does this weird dance and then it's like not funny. But then you realize this was all part of the stagecraft. Right. And one of the things that I don't like about film or that I'm trying to figure out what the film equivalent of it is is that in theater you can genuinely create a moment that feels like is this supposed to be happening? Like right. and you can really tension. feel like major tension. Nervous? Yeah. For the people and feel like oh maybe somebody forgot their line or maybe somebody didn't enter and that is the most exciting feeling in sitting in an audience of of of, of a theater. And in film, you can never totally get that because people know, well, the filmmakers have watched this a million times. They've cut it, cut it. They've chosen where the edit points are. They know what it is. So this can't really be a mistake. It's funny, though, when you say that, I think of there are certain scenes in both Mistress America and Frances Ha where there's a bit of that tension. I'm reminded of when you want to play fight with with your second like with your replacement friend. friend. I know. And and you push her and she's like, no. And and as an audience member at that point, I'm going like, she should stop doing stop that. Stop doing that. I yeah, know. and there's some tension there. So You try to create I try I mean in Francis, Francis says I like things that look like mistakes. And I would say that is the closest thing to me having a mouthpiece. Yeah. For myself. Right. I mean, there's something very alive about them. Well, that's a photographer thing, too. I mean, oh, all, yeah, all you want to do as a course. photographer is surprise yourself, and it's so hard. Well, it takes so much skill to surprise, to surprise yourself. You know what it is? And I don't think it's actually connected to just photography. I think any art form, yeah. we can only be ourselves, and we can only make right. the things that we make. So when we accidentally make something that oh my God. looks like somebody else, I know. you get so excited about it. I know. Well, like, I don't know. I mean, this is... Uh, rest in peace, but when Bob D- Dylan won the Nobel and then they asked um, Leonard Cohen about him and he said something like, well, anybody who really knows knows that we're not writing the songs anyway. And like, and you're like, yeah, I mean, only Leonard Cohen can say that in that way, but like you do sort of feel that way. You're like, I don't know how I wrote it or how I acted it. I mean, I know like I'm, I try to be very strict with myself and I try to do the work but then the thing that happens that seems to be magical is kind of beyond your control and I, I don't know I don't know it's a it's a paradox and probably Leonard Cohen's the only one who ever knew the answer but I wonder what the acting version of that is because I think that acting has to remain a mystery for it to remain interesting right I think all the greats that I've had the privilege of being around of great actors it's it's some creepy witchcraft shit what they do <laughs> and I don't think they understand it yeah I, I I think they understand it to a point there's some technique there's some stuff and I I think the more gifted and skilled an actor is the less that they intellectualize it they they lock into something they find some plumb line and then they it's almost, I, I, we keep using different metaphors, but it's almost like a surfer catching a wave. Like, I, they just know when they've got it, and they don't, they can't explain it to you.
Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, the Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship. I want to tell you about this advertiser because it's a really unique situation. The fellowship decided only to advertise on this show because our audience is full of creative individuals. And it's a great honor for me that the Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship chose to pick this show as a way to tell you about their program. So let me tell you what this is because it's pretty unique. The Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship is a one-year intensive podcast program. It delves into every imaginable aspect of the podcasting industry, from soup to nuts. It dissects all the information necessary to make a real show, not just recorded fireside chats. Now, what does that mean? It means that if I had had this six or seven years ago, I probably would have not made a lot of mistakes that I made in learning how to make a podcast. Now, who should apply, you ask? Writers, producers, storytellers, editors, print and radio reporters, and anyone considering a new career opportunity. Basically, anyone with a story to tell. So why apply to this fellowship? It's a commitment. And if you're really serious about a new career in podcasting or about upping your podcast game, then you want to find the best source for maximizing your time and effort spent. With the Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship, you can learn everything you need to know on a schedule that accommodates working professionals. And it's connected. You receive advanced instruction from top New York City professionals working successfully in podcast and radio productions. Through this program, you can intern on one or more popular podcasts. Their students have gone to work at Huffington Post, 24-7 Sports, Talking Feds, Death, Sex, and Money, and many more. Students leave the program with a finished, ready-to-market pilot of their podcast, and they leave prepared to enter and work in this growing high-demand field. This is a very selective program. Apply to be one of only 10 people chosen from a highly competitive admissions process. The one-year in-person program costs $8,200, and the online-only version of the program will cost approximately half the price. Scholarships and financial aid are also available on a case-by-case basis. So here's the where of it all. You can take classes at the David Rakoff Podcast Studio on the Stony Brook Southampton campus, also at the Manhattan Center for Creative Writing and Film at 535 8th Avenue near Penn Station, and there's online instruction through Zoom. This includes weekly group discussions with all fellows and individual working sessions with instructors. The final deadline is July 20th, 2020. So... Because the fellowship decided to only advertise on this show, it's important when you apply to let them know you got sent by me and off camera for an extension on the deadline. Specifically for our listeners only, the fellows deadline will be extended up until July 27th. Go to podcastfellows.com. That's podcastfellows.com and go to apply for a chance to be part of this phenomenal opportunity. That's podcastfellows.com and make sure to tell them off camera sent you. Now back to the show. You know, I'm thinking about you doing 20th Century Women, and yeah. you didn't write it, you didn't direct no. it, you didn't, you just got to purely act. Yeah. And, and I wonder if after having to sort of build the ship and steer the yeah. ship, being able to go and do that, if you remember the great joy it is to be able to get lost like that. Oh, it's, it's incredibly joyful, and it's so terrifying also. But it's, it's both. It's like, it's... What's a, the terrifying part? Oh, just that you're dreadful, and that... You've taken something that was good, and you you haven't found you haven't found how to do it, and you're just sinking the boat. And 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 what's amazing about working with great filmmakers, but terrifying is you love the boat, and you're <laughs> like, I'm the leak, 
Um, and I, I usually even the first day, I actually, Jackie was at AFI, and I, we, we had a dinner during the screening, and I was sitting next to the very lovely editor who's Chilean, and his name is Sebastian. And he was like, and he said this in such a sweet way, but he was like, you were very nervous the first day. And I was like, you're right, I was. How did you know? He's like, because I look at all the, the rushes. I've seen every single take of yours. And he was like, you were like terrified. And he was like, and then you settled down and you found it. And I was like, that's exactly right. But it's so weird that you know that about me. But I, it's almost like... I've, I feel like, because I think Pablo is such a great filmmaker, I respect Natalie so much, she was doing such beautiful things, and I got, I got this like, oh no, I'm, I'm the one that's gonna... You be. had a moment where it's like, because yes, it's a mystery, yeah. you don't know if you can bring it. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and I, think, I think the thing, if I've learned anything is, you cannot fight that fear, you have to almost burrow into it as an actor and be like, you feel wooden? How wooden? How wooden do you feel? How much does this language not... How much do you feel like you're pretending? How much do you feel like you're forcing it? And just like get really comfortable because I, I feel like if you try to push it away, it keeps coming back up. And so, but it was just odd to have an editor turn to me and be like, that first day. And I was like, wow. oh my God. You noticed. I mean, of course you noticed. You're an editor, but... It's so interesting how, uh, how common that is, though, that people want their first day back. I think filmmakers, oh God, I think I directors know. want their first day back, too, or their first week. Totally. That's why I feel like it's always a smart idea to shoot the very beginning of the film at, on the last week. Because I think by then everybody's loose and knows what they're doing I don't, I mean, obviously shooting in order is useful, but but I think in order except for the first part. You that's, should shoot that last, I think. So you come off 20th Century Women, um, which mm -hmm. was a Mike Mills movie, and it's ostensibly a memoir. Of, yeah. And a story of he and his mother. And, yeah. Um, and you've just directed your own film. Mm -hmm. Now, is your film a memoir as well? Yeah, in a way. I mean, it's funny because it's... It's all made up, I mean, in the strictest sense. None of it happened, but it's all, it all rhymes with what happened. That's a good way to put it. But also it's invented, so then I also add my invention on top of it. So, so I think like those, those movies that are sort of memoir-ish, you know, if they were published as memoirs, as nonfiction, as books, we would all be sued because they're not really like true. Yeah, they're <laughs> not really true. They're just, but they're kind of true. Okay, so what I want to ask you about, I think, I think connects to writing and then acting versus writing and not acting because, right. because you were saying earlier about, about how you have to disassociate yourself yeah. from the writing when you go to act. And, and I get this picture of you almost having to put the script in a drawer and then come back as an actor a week later and pick it up and read it. That's true. But when you're making your own film mm. that rhymes with your own childhood, <laughs> it's called Eild Ud. Eild Ud, yeah. yeah. No, but when you're doing that and you're casting someone to play yeah. a younger version that rhymes with you, yeah. was there a bit of that disconnect that had to take place too in letting that 
actor, in this case, Saoirse Ronan, yeah, yeah. take yeah. that character over even though you know the insides of that character? Well, in a way, what you're hoping for is that, is that, um, is that thing that, that is the mystery of collaborative art forms as well, is that they do the thing that you didn't, you couldn't anticipate and you didn't see coming and you didn't have the even in your mind's eye was different than this like that that's when it feels exciting like with it with an actor when they read it and you're like no I didn't see it this way and this is more interesting and better because they're bringing all of their life and their experience to it and so it it's almost like if it feels like what you thought it was supposed to feel like it's wrong if it feels like... Ah, so because it's too yeah. one-dimensional. Yeah. And then it's like I, I, I think a lot of filmmakers, not a lot, but some filmmakers, I think their deepest, deepest wish is that they could clone themselves 200 times so that they could perform all the parts and do the set design and do the camera and do the sound sure. just as they would do it. And I think it's a very odd impulse to work in maybe the most collaborative art form if what you really want to do is clone yourself a hundred times. <laughs> and I feel the opposite, which is that I, I do not want to clone myself a hundred times. What I want is to someone, someone to, almost like a call and response. I don't, I don't want an echo. I, I want a, an answer. That's what I'm looking for in all my collaborators, whether it's actors or, or designers or DPs, is I'm looking for them. Let's let's back up a little bit yeah. and just you grew up in Sacramento. I did, yeah. And then you went off to New York yes. to college and you yeah. started writing plays and yeah. and and one thing I should mention is that in Francis Ha you go home to Sacramento. You go home to Sacramento, which is obviously an autobiographical element yeah. that you put yeah. into the film. Yeah. But was your experience making Lady Bird an expanded version of that to where you were you had to go back and sort of look at everything to be able to make a an authentic story? Yeah, I mean, I, in a way, I don't, I, I always feel self-conscious about um, things that are autobiographical or, or true to me after the fact. While I'm making it, it, it just seems like, I mean, this sounds like a silly example, but like in Goodfellas, Scorsese uses his mother when they go, when they got the guy in the back of the car, and then they go and eat at that at his um, mother's house. It's um, and it's his real mother. And it's his real mother. And there's something when you she answers the door, and you're like, "Who is that woman? She seems real." And you're like, well, "It is real. That's his mother. That's right. like his actual mom, and that's actually how she talks to her son." And and it feel it's and so that makes sense to me, like that sort of insertion of reality, but like. I have a sense that what people are implying is that I didn't make anything, that I recreated something. And that, it's like when people say, oh, are you playing yourself? And you're like, oh, no. Like, it, it's, like, it, it's almost like the implication is you, there's no art there. It's the best compliment wrapped up in the biggest slam, yeah. both. Because right. in one sense, if they're believing that, you're doing your job. But and in another sense, says, it's like, oh God. come on. I know. And then right? you're like, am I just a hack? Um, but, but I think, I mean, when I think of the filmmakers I love, um, that I really love, they're all personal filmmakers. Yeah. 
I mean, Bergman shot 50 feet from his house on an island and, you know, he's using the people around him. And, and even though they're these, like, wild kind of psychodramas, they're really, they're very, very personal. Yeah. And, like, I mean, Fanny and Alexander is an incredibly personal film. And, like, you know, Woody Allen's films are incredibly personal. And, I mean, there's so many... Filmmaker, I watched Amarcord, and I mean, that's to me one of. I talked with Mike a bunch about um, Fellini because that movie is like, it's his childhood, but it's also not his childhood. Like, none of it, it, it's it's all heightened and crazy, but it's more like how you remember it rather than how it was. And obviously, Mike's film. He gave me actually a book of Fellini interviews when I was going to go direct my movie, and he says he wrote in it, "This is the best director's annex." And um, <laughs> director's annex, exactly, yeah. gets you down off the high ledge. Yeah. And what's great about the Fellini interviews is Fellini feels—it's so funny because he makes such personal films, and he feels absolutely no obligation to the truth. Half of what he says is a lie, or or made up in some way. He doesn't feel the need to like really tell you the story. He just tells a story that's interesting to him at that moment and maybe it's a fabrication, maybe much of it is lies. Yeah. Maybe you don't even know what the truth is. Which we don't. Which half we the don't time because we only have one perspective. <laughs> yeah. right. And and right. I mean that's shown brilliantly in 20th century women that right. we get to see the mom's perspective and, and the kid's perspective. Right. And they're totally different. But getting back to your Fellini director's annex, did that give you permission to let yourself be looser or be more uh, surreal about the experience? Or I mean, I guess I'm asking what yeah. were you afraid would derail the process? Well, the, my, my biggest fear was really um, technically based in some ways, which was I've been around enough filmmakers to know that there's just a shorthand you get when you've made a few films that that you just don't have when you're a first-time director. And even though I've, I'm very comfortable with the process of, of making a film and I've been in lots of editing rooms and I know I have more knowledge than I think really it kind of I'm not quite a first-time director in that way. The way, like, for example, Noah, when he directed his first film at 24, Kicking and Screaming, he had never been on a film set. And he was 24 years old. He didn't know what the... Like, he didn't... He was like, I... Action? I mean, I know. Like, it was... I mean, he talks about it. Like, I don't even know what... Why I thought I could do it, like, in retrospect. But this thing that happens when you've directed a few films where you're able to is just you intuitively know like like I'm not going to need that shot I'll never use it or I want to get this because I know I'll want that to connect to this or I'm going to cut from here to here or I've got to shoot this doorway the same with the same framing that I did before because we have to know that it's the same house and they don't know whether like things like that that you have that you don't you only get through making them. So that was, you have to make your mistakes. You have to make your mistakes. So that's what I was anxious about. But I talked to another filmmaker friend of mine about this, um, Rebecca Miller, who I made a movie with called Maggie's Plan. Yes. And she's made several movies. And she said she knew Mike Nichols when she was growing up. And she said, well, I'm going to tell you what Mike Nichols told me, which is do not rob yourself 
of not knowing what you're doing. You only get it once. And after you know what you're doing, then you'll know what to be afraid of, and you'll never, you'll never make those mistakes again, but you'll also never be able to stumble into something that's great that you didn't know again. Like there's, I mean, in his first film was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah. And he didn't even know, he, there's this story of him, like, he, he had an idea for the first shot that they, they're on the other side of the door, they open the door, they walk through, and they like stay with them as they walk through and they're talking and doing the opening lines of Virginia Woolf. And he was talking to the DP and he was like, that's what I want to do. And he's like, but my only question is, how do you get the, won't the door hit the camera? <laughs> and the DP's like, have you not heard about lenses? And then he was like, no. And then they, he was like, okay. Then they took 48 hours and he was like, here's how this works. Like, we'll be on a wider lens so we can, or a tighter lens so we can be farther away. And like, but it's like, there is a magic of not knowing. And I think, so my fear was both like the thing I tried to find st- sort of a strength in, which is that like, you don't even know. You don't even know what the problems are going to be. You don't know be. what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. It's like the unknown unknown, like Donald Rumsfeld is worried about. <laughs> well, I, look, I, what, I, what I think about when you say that is when you go by the camera and the DP hasn't set the shot up yet and it's shooting into the room and it makes you see the room in a way you, oh, and yeah. you're like, oh, 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 oh let's yeah. shoot that before yeah, we move yeah, the yeah. camera. And the DP yeah. says, well, I haven't even done anything. And I like, know. You know, know, it's it's the accidents again, probably that you're chasing, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing about like, oh, I never saw the room that way until the camera was that way. I mean, I feel that way all the time. It's so once you start thinking in frames, it's a really weird thing to have happen because it's different than you experience life. And I think the the trick of film is it feels like, oh, that's life, but it's it's not. It's it's these two dimensional slices. Yeah, but it, it parades as life. But it's not actually how you experience it when you're in it. When you think about the amount of decisions you have to make and the amount of things that could go wrong or that you could just do badly, it's enough to make you like not want to get out of bed because it really is just one thing after another, another where you're like, what if I don't have a point of view about this? What if? And I think something, I mean, one thing I know from acting and also from writing that I kind of tried to to use as much as I could in directing was like, lean into your peculiarities in a way. Like, they are what make you you. So even if it's weird or it feels wrong, like, I mean, little things. Like, I like seeing people like head to toe. I like seeing their feet. I always feel really uncomfortable when a shot cuts off at somebody's knees. At the ankles, or at the yeah. knees, yeah. And that's weird. And it's, that's too wide, technically. But I was also like, but I'm making it. And maybe, maybe it's wrong, and maybe I'll step away from this, and maybe it'll be a huge mistake. But I was like, but you got to go with the thing that you feel good about, because you're the one making You're the only one who's ever going to make it. You know? and, that's, and, if, and if you have a voice, if you have a thing, you're only going to find it by leaning into the things that maybe feel not right 
Yeah, how, how do you get a voice without trusting your voice? But, but, but you try to reconcile that with you saying, like, on that first day, thinking that you're the leak in the boat I know, as an actor. I, know. I mean, because I would think that, you know, an actor maybe is, is by nature a different personality type than a writer, and both yeah. of them are different personality types than a director. Yeah. And, and you're sort of navigating all three at this point. Yeah, I've always felt kind of. I mean, what do you more... feel like first? I think first and foremost, I'm a writer. I think I always have been, and I think that's what I am mostly. I used to joke that I was, I was like, oh, I'm a writer who talks <laughs> when I was acting, especially with the improv movies. I felt like I'm just, I'm writing it out loud. I think for me, like the process of like the writing like, being a writer who talks, like, writing while I was acting in those improv films was a way to be more myself because I was thinking as a writer, not as an actor. I think when actors improvise, it's, like, the most self-conscious exercise. But I also think finding your voice is not a static thing. I think you need to do it again and again and again and again. And I think the trap is, if you think you've found it, then you just start imitating yourself. And we all know examples of that. Yeah, and I think it's really, really hard to let go. Because it means you're going to do something that might be bad and that you have to start at the beginning again. But it's so important, and I think I'm always interested in the in-between films of, like, in Ber Bergman after Persona made Hour of the Wolf, which everybody was like, thumbs down, <laughs> Hour of the Wolf. And in his, like, autobiography, he writes, it was an unsteady step in the right direction. And I think it's like, well, you know, the truth is you don't make Fanny and Alexander later if you don't let yourself make Hour of the Wolf. You have to go through it. You have to, like, keep letting go and reforming and keep going in and making it again. But it takes a lot. It's hard because you have to, because your ego really wants to hang on to what it thinks works. Well, that's getting right back to a test screening idea. Like, yeah. they think a test screening can make you avoid Hour of the Wolf, and you can't. You gotta do Hour of the Wolf. <laughs> Hour of the Wolf is not bad, I will say. I mean, it, it was not as good as Persona, but it's really good. I have to ask you. Yes. If you were this way out of the shoot. Out of the shoot. Well, the birth canal, the... Oh, out of the <laughs> shoot. I was like, out of the shoot. But, but I guess what I'm asking is, you know, I think growing up, I was somebody who, um, I was led around by my interests. Mm. And as much as I wanted to be cool and fit yeah. and stuff, yeah. that didn't supersede my interests. And, and I just yeah. wondered if that's sort of how you started or when you noticed you were different than your friends that way. Well, I think I, 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 think I came in with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of big feelings and um, a lot of capacity for wonder. And I think I was just very lucky that, um, that my parents and my community stoked it. And I really had a lot of opportunities to be exposed to things that kind of cracked open the, the, the door to a wider world. Like I had, you know, I was very interested in dance when I was growing up and I, I studied ballet very seriously and then I got really into modern dance. And there's always a person when I needed them that had a little key for me. And, and it was all over the place. And I, I, think, I think it's just 
it was the luck of the draw in that way. And I think I just have kept meeting people who have continually stoked something. And there's always there's always another thing I don't I don't know, and I'm excited by. And I I mean maybe I I don't know that I ever felt. Um, I mean, I did feel that I did different from other people. I don't know. I did have some strong opinions early, which were, um, which was tricky because I think kids do not like a kid that looks like they're that they have a real strong point of view. Do you know, like kids want other? Like kids are very suspicious of a kid who seems too invested. I mean, the whole basis of coolness is somebody who's not invested. That is what coolness is. is That's a great definition of coolness. Yeah, you're not invested. You just kind of, you could take it or leave it. And then there's something like, that's that's what they're all going for. And I was quite the opposite. And um, I remember getting really upset at someone in a high school because we'd had to read um, Hamlet. And they said, <laughs> it was like, let's open it up for discussion. What did people think? And somebody in the class said, I liked it. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I was like, I don't know what I'm talking about, really, but I legitimately think this, this, these might be the most beautiful words in the English language ever put together that may be created our idea of like a self-reflective person like and this is the precursor to everything that comes out like and you liked it you dan- like I don't know it wasn't a bad way to spend a night like I was so angry and then I was like no this gate this gains you know friends you got to keep this inside but then I found my people so but it's exactly how I think like any any person who's ever tried to create something that's that's true to them or original or or follows an idea down a path where they don't know what the result's going to be can relate to that of like the yeah. enemy of good art is not bad art it's ambivalent art or it's 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 people who aren't invested like you say right that that's why i think i get i keep going back to like is it is it made by a person because i would much rather have a bad film or a bad play that i can really feel a person behind it Right. Than just something that feels like it was made by basically a, 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 a corporation or a committee. A committee that has no personality. I, I don't, that's not what I turned to art for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that says it all right there. That's not what you turned to art for. That's not why Hamlet turned you on. But, like, I don't know. I mean, I could go in circles with this because it really is. It really is endlessly fascinating. Well, I know we have to wrap this up, but I could talk to you for hours about this. I think that I think that we'll never figure it out. I'm just warning <laughs> you. We will only but get ourselves trying. more confused. We're trying. Yeah, we do. We're trying. And when you know, strike one for the the non-focus group people. Yeah. Um, no, but thank you because for me, it's it's great when I meet someone who's made films that intrigue me and puzzle me and excite me, and and I meet them and I can tell that it wasn't a one-off or they didn't get luckier. <laughs> They weren't a product of, of a bunch of people. I, I feel like you're doing really original work. And, Thank you. and then I meet you, and you're this original thinker. And Thanks. Gives me hope for the creative future of the world. Well, I think that there's, there's a good group of people out there making. Every time so everyone, anyone writes an article that's like, cinema is dead, I'm like, 
not where I, from where I'm sitting, people are making interesting work all the time, and I. You just gotta find it. I like yeah. If all you were watching was like, no offense, but like Marvel movies, sure, cinema's dead. Yeah. But if you look or Kangaroo out, Jack. if you look outside of this bubble. The world cinema and, and, and American independent cinema, there is fascinating stuff being done. And so I just feel like um, there's this Chesterton quote, like, we, we are perishing not from lack of wonders, but lack of wonder. Oh, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah, he was clever. He's a clever Brit. And it was clever of you, too. To bring I'm that just up. repeating it. I but mean, it's a, I didn't come it, up but with it's it. perfect. It's yeah, a perfect way it, to. It's a great. It's a great one. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was fun. I forgot that it was for anybody else. Hey folks, that's our show for today. You know, we've been doing off camera for a while now, and it's been quite an adventure. And as much as I've enjoyed the conversations I've had with these amazing guests over the last few years, I've also really enjoyed hearing from the listeners. So please drop me a line. I'm sam at offcamera.com. And let me know what you think of the show. Send me suggestions, ideas. Let me know what you do. Are you an actor? Are you an inventor? Do you own a business? Are you a teacher? Let me know about your process, your curiosity. I think we've started to create a pretty interesting community here of people who really love authentic, long-form, deep conversation about process and art and creativity and curiosity. So let me know what makes you tick and how off-camera fits into your life. I will see you really soon, right back here on the next Off-Camera. Off-Camera.